Hello and welcome to Front and Center, a show dedicated to insights and perspectives on commercial real estate investment across the public and private markets. For more information, please visit centersquare.com. Welcome back to another episode of Front and Center. I'm Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist and Global ESG Lead here at Centersquare. For the final installation of our Outlook series, I'm excited to dive into our expectations in this coming year across our strategic capital business with Chad Burkhart. You guys have heard him before, Managing Director for our strategic capital business. This year is really shaping up to be a year that's marked by a dislocated market environment across the real estate industry, which means there are always some interesting opportunities to pretty creatively deploy capital. And investing in that kind of creative white space is definitely Chad's specialty. So thank you, Chad, for for being here today to discuss your outlook for the year. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And before we, we dig into that outlook, maybe let's discuss the past year. You know, 2023 was also an interesting year across the real estate industry. What did you see over the last 12 months? Yeah, I think we're all pretty happy to have 2023 in the books and behind us. Um, it was a bit of a charge-off year on the private side where there was a clear dislocation between buyers and sellers, and that ran transaction volumes down anywhere between 60 and 70% of the previous year. I think the best opportunities really lied in the debt and credit space where you could provide borrowers who had hit some kind of loan maturity with liquidity at pretty attractive returns. Uh, but you owned a portfolio of real estate and you weren't forced to do something, the best thing to do is probably nothing. And I think that kind of goes against human nature where people want to be busy and transacting and showing that they're useful to their bosses when the best thing to do may just been to stay put. But it didn't really mean that we were inactive in strategic capital. You know, my view on this has always been as a real estate investor, it's kind of like being a bartender. No one's at the bar. It doesn't mean there isn't anything to do. You can be cutting up lemons and limes and taking inventories and making sure there's mixers for when the bar is busy again so that you can make money. Or in the case of real estate, when actionable opportunities come back across our desk. So for Center Square, more broadly, we saw some great opportunities in 2023 for our clients to increase their tactical positions in the public REIT market. Uh, that offered tremendous value in both absolute terms and certainly relative to private investment options. Last year, you could buy Southeast apartment REITs at a mid-seven cap and below replacement cost. Uh, And it's pretty rare that the public markets give you those kind of pitches to hit. Within strategic capital, the side of the business where we're looking at making growth investments into private platforms, uh, there were a few live opportunities, but thankfully that's changed and We're looking at closing something here in the first quarter of 24 uh, that we've been working on for the better part of the past six months. Awesome. And and as we kind of start this conversation looking forward into next year, maybe let's start by discussing the concept of a capital cycle, right? It's something that you talk about pretty frequently. Maybe just lay out the framework for what you're really talking about when when you talk about this capital cycle. The concept of a capital cycle isn't something that's original or something that we can really take credit for. It's been written about in books. And I was first introduced to the concept about five years ago from an investor named Nick Sleep at Marathon. And in its simplest form, it's really just to say that there's this inverse relationship between investment or asset growth and then future returns. So if you think about the cycle like a sine wave, At the peak, that's when you see your friends making so much money in a trade or investing in a sector that's working and more and more money comes in and there's lots of optimism. 
And then that results in developers and real estate. That's when developers start to build more and more and they can't get enough. And that, of course, crowds out future returns. And there's excess supply and you end up delivering product to no buyers. And the alternative is also true on the downside where capital leaves, uh, returns suffer, you know, no one's building. And at the bottom, there's a lot of pessimism and, and margins stay flat. Okay, so as you think about this in the context of a rural state, is there maybe an example that you could provide? An example of the capital cycle within uh, would be within retail. Let's use a subsector that we really like called essential service retail or unanchored strips. So if you live in the suburbs, this is where you go get your Starbucks, get your nails done, your haircut, uh, your local pizza shops there. Uh, it's where you go to yoga or take your kids to urgent care in the middle of the night. So pretty much all the things that you can't do online. So following the global financial crisis, retail started to go out of favor. Institutional investors really hit the exits. And you had a consumer that was going through a recession, shopping less, rents were down, vacancies were up. So fast forward 10 years, e-commerce has been you know, running circles around bricks and mortar retail. Malls have been bad investments. There's uncertainty around big box. So overall, negative sentiment a lot of investor pessimism. So from a capital cycle perspective, if you're thinking about that sign curve again, we would be at the bottom of the trough. And all of that sounds bad, but it's actually really great if you're an investor. So these assets now have lower rents in place, uh, specifically compared to replacement cost rents, which are the rents that you need to justify new building. Uh, the retail centers are selling at attractive cap rates because um, all retail has been kind of crossed off so many investors' lists. And finally, and really what's most crucial is there's very little supply of this product because we're over-retailed, right? And who can go to their investment committee with a spec retail deal, which is, you know, no one. So for the past five years, we've been quietly buying these centers over and over and over, making consistent returns for our investors. And our rent growth has been great. There's been margin expansion, again, because there's really no supply and it's been out of favor. We definitely love a story in the real estate space with low supply. It tends to, tends to go well. So how do you think about the changes across this capital cycle in terms of informing investment opportunities for you within that kind of strategic capital landscape and especially around the structure of that investment? That's an interesting question because I think it's a little bit counterintuitive because you know, when the animal spirits are flowing and your competitors are most active and investment bankers are raising the most money is probably the time you want to be either least active or if you have flexible capital, you want to move up more senior into the capital stack. And of course, the opposite is true. When things are more depressed and pessimistic is when you want to take those sellers out of their equity, either because they're fatigued or they've had bad returns and they're just ready to move on. So I'll tell you a story. I was with a friend of mine once out in California. This was probably 2006, 2007, and he was this old uh, residential land broker. And we were getting dinner at this great place that he had picked out in Santa Monica. And I was really excited to talk to him. And we had ordered dinner. And I started asking him what he thought of our underwriting on this land investment that we were looking at making. And he stopped me and he said, Chad, 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 you're, you're not making this investment. And I just remember staring at him in disbelief and, you know, why did I fly all the way across the country? And he said, well, to buy me dinner and to thank me for saving you millions of dollars on future losses. And, I, you know, I was floored. I was 
I was shocked. And, and he said something I'll never forget. He said, when developers ask for equity, that's when you want to be preferred equity. And when they want preferred equity, that's when you should be equity. And so that lesson has stuck with me for a really long time. So assuming you had a, a nice dinner, did you happen to go through with the land deal? No, we, we, you know, I went back and kind of explained um, kind of what was going on in the ground um, out in California. And he was right, of course, the hedge fund um, out of San Francisco that bought that land lost all their money over the next two years. And it was a mess. And he was right. It was it was certainly the best meal I've ever I've ever paid for. And, and you know, as you know, Uma, in, in private equity, uh, sometimes the best deals are the ones that you don't do. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe kind of bring this back to this capital cycle conversation, the intersection of the capital cycle with some of the more secular trends that we're seeing, that's creating some pretty interesting opportunities across different real estate sectors today. And so maybe we can unpack some of those opportunities a bit further here and, and start with maybe healthcare. Healthcare is a big one that we're focused on, definitely focused on across the REIT side of our business. Given the aging population that we're seeing globally, it's something that we're bullish on across the U.S., across Europe. I mean, those demographic tailwinds are definitely more secular in nature. And, and how is that intersecting with what you're seeing from the capital perspective? Yeah. So again, you can look at this through the, the lens of the capital cycle. You've had low supply in, in U.S. senior housing since the last big expansion period around you know 2015. Returns have been poor for those investors. They got caught too much supply. And then with COVID, uh, so you have fatigue setting in. And today we're talking to really strong sponsors in the space that are looking at pairing up with new equity to take advantage of the next five-year run that I think we'll see here. Given the limited supply and the benefit of strong demographic demand that we all see coming, lots of institutional capital has been investing in senior housing ahead of when baby boomers need to cycle into uh, senior housing facilities. And they, they've all been a little too early, maybe I'd say a little bit impatient. To give you some facts, baby boomers today in, in 2024 are, are somewhere between 60 and 78 years old. So the data tells us that by 2030, you know, plus or minus, it's going to be prime time for peaking demand. And clearly, there isn't enough supply in the sector. and Therefore, we're gearing up to make investments today, and when rents are spiking closer to 2030, we'll be selling to buyers that are underwriting that growth into perpetuity. So, you know, the problem I think people have with the capital cycle is that, you know, it's a pretty easy concept to understand, but difficult to actually do in practice. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and maybe another area of that secular demand that we've been talking about, and I we've discussed this at length, Chad, is, is across that data center industry. It, the, the pace at which that technology and the demand is evolving and expanding for data centers is really beyond what we typically see in the real estate space, right? And it's, it's definitely higher than the level of just power that we can deliver and generate to these data centers. That being said, the demand for data centers is not really a secret anymore either, right? There's a lot of institutional capital looking at the space today. Where do you think that we are in the capital cycle for data centers? And then what maybe what does that mean for the opportunities that might be ahead? Yeah, in the data center space, we're certainly past the inflection point at the bottom of the trough. There's a lot of optimism. Uh, you've had larger private equity players already come in uh, to the sector and, and taken private some of the REITs, Blackstone with QTS, KKR and GIP with Cyrus One. 
Uh, and they're going to do very well with those investments that were made in 21 and 22. Uh, but this, this sector eats up so much capital because of the size of these hyperscale deployments that there clearly are opportunities to fund private companies that have sites with power that are pre-leased to these investment grade tech companies. So that business plan isn't really all that risky. It's just really more about finding the best sponsors who, one, can execute the design build and, and side and, and have really great cooling technology. And then two, have all the inroads uh, with the big customers, the AWS, Google, Meta, Facebook, Oracles of the world. And, and the difficulty from my seat is just identifying those companies and getting in front of those folks and being able to agree on terms. So we're finally seeing a sector that has real rent growth. Um, the research tells you that there's going to be 10 to 12% demand growth annually for the next decade. So bringing this all back to the capital cycle, we want to invest equity today, get these data centers built so that we can sell or go public over the next handful of years. You know, currently there are only two remaining public data center companies, and I really think that the the REIT market would welcome more names to invest into. The main concern that I have um, in the data center space today is that you just end up doing more and more and more, and you stay too long at the party. So it's more getting overextended and being subject to duration risk on the backside of the investment. Yeah, and something that's pretty unique about data centers as well is just the the power of that platform, right? You mentioned it just in terms of having those inroads across different customers, but also being able to create a bit of a platform and, and provide services to customers wherever they need across the space is, is definitely super important there as well. And I, I know you 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 talk a lot about the the power of investing in in platforms. And kind of maybe speaking of of platforms, something else that we've also looked into has been more of a consolidation opportunity, right? Many different property types across the real estate space are still really owned in a fragmented way. And the consolidation, the institutionalization provides that powerful platform growth opportunity. And we're doing that kind of across that essential service retail strategy that you talked about a little bit earlier on the private side. But building that institutional and scaled platform is, is something that provides a growth opportunity as well. Is, is that something that you've looked into in terms of the strategic capital opportunity space? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, just like regular way private equity, executing a, a roll-up strategy of a fragmented industry is definitely exciting because you typically can underwrite really solid returns from the underlying real estate itself. And then you have two outs that are in your favor in getting positive asymmetric payouts if you can do the work to accumulate a portfolio. So first, being a, a bid at a lower cap rate or a higher multiple just simply due to size, because large institutional capital just isn't set up to have the patience of buying 10 or $20 million assets one at a time. So that's the first layer. And then the second layer is you could possibly achieve even higher multiples if uh, larger capital flows start coming into into the overall sector. So let's think about some examples we've seen in the past. Exeter is, is a great example in the industrial space. We saw Blackstone and Starwood do this in the SFR space um, when that wasn't institutional and, and they went public. Uh, now we have Invitation Homes. Center Square has been the beneficiary through our investment in Lineage Logistics. That's the largest cold storage owner-operator in the world. And between Lineage and Americold, they control over 
today 60% of the product in the U.S. And there's just been massive consolidation in that industry that we've benefited from. So we're looking at running that same playbook in, in essential service retail, as you mentioned, and doing that hard work of acquiring smaller properties to create a portfolio and institutionalize that space within retail. What I, what I like most about a roll-up strategy is that you can be handsomely rewarded for doing hard work in buying smaller properties. And there's something about that that feels really good to me. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different property types out there that that lend themselves pretty pretty well to a strategy like that. Maybe the last thing I'll ask you here, and I think this is probably the most interesting opportunity set today, given just the level of dislocation that we're experiencing across the marketplace. How do you see the opportunity set ahead of you as a liquidity provider at large and in the real estate industry today? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely uh, hard to pin down and describe exactly what we'll see. But, you know, with the Fed going vertical with 500 basis points over a short period of time, you know, things are um, going to break uh, within CRE. And, you know, for a long time, capital was so plentiful and ubiquitous and wasn't really being respected by the market. And now there's been a full 180 turn there, which is, you know, nice to see if you're a capital provider. Regional banks, unfortunately, are going to have real problems with their loan books. You know, last time during the global financial crisis, it was a lot easier to just call on the money center banks. You know, you could call the desks at Bear Stearns or Wachovia or Lehman all the way down the list and pick over their loans and CMBS bonds that they were hung with. You know, today, the problem is really spread out more broadly to the next level of banks. And it'll be interesting to see how it resolves itself. Uh, this time around and how much help is provided by the regulators to create structures to help recapitalize banks and, and borrowers. I think, I think you'll see some creative structures emerge throughout the year. And I also think you'll see REITs being a, a big beneficiary because, you know, by and large, they've done such a great job in maintaining clean balance sheets. Uh, they're basically so lowly levered that they can finally uh, start playing some offense off the bottom once we start to see asset pricing reset in the private markets uh, over 2024. Yeah, I think the attention on the regional banks has been pretty apparent over this this past earnings cycle as well. We've seen some seen some headlines in terms of of some issues in terms of their their real estate debt books and to your point exactly, I think the REITs are really really well positioned here. Not only are they lowly levered, but also their access to capital is really unique within the the real estate state space more broadly, given the fact that they do have a lot more access to unsecured bonds and they're not just relying on that bank um, to to find that debt capital. Awesome. I, I think that's a wrap here on a pretty wide ranging discussion. As you mentioned, Chad, I think as investors in environments like this, it, it makes for really exciting times, I think, to be creative and deploy capital. And this conversation has definitely been a great reminder of that. Always appreciate your insights, Chad. So thank you for joining. With that, it is a wrap on our 2024 Outlook series. As we move back to our regularly scheduled programming, we're going to be moving to biweekly episodes, and we're excited to bring you a special guest for our next episode as we do a deep dive into one of the sectors that we discussed here today. We'll be back in two weeks with another great discussion here on Front and Center. Thanks for listening to Front and Center. You can subscribe on your favorite streaming platform and please be sure to leave us a review. 
To stay up to date, you can visit our website at centersquare.com to access our thought leadership, sign up for our mailing list, or contact our team. We look forward to hearing from you. The content of this podcast is informational only and represents the viewpoints of the presenters at the time of recording. It should not be regarded as a solicitation nor investment advice. All information presented is subject to change at any time based on new data, analysis, or market conditions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.